Hey guys, what is going on? We are in the zone. This is episode 126. We got some big, big stuff to talk about today. Um, The NHL trade deadline just concluded yesterday. A bunch of moves. We always love this time of year. And of course, WrestleMania just concluded their two-day fiesta this weekend, Saturday, Sunday. Pretty damn solid for a show that didn't have fans, but we'll talk about that a little later on in the show. To kick it off today, though, we got to kick it off with our boy. It's been a trend for the last month. Buffalo. We're going to kick off with Buffalo. Taylor Hall getting traded to the Boston Bruins for almost nothing. Taylor Hall and Curtis Lazar for a second round pick and Anders Bjork. Do you think Buffalo rushed this trade or do you think there were really no other better deals that were available for Taylor Hall? Uh, There was probably nothing better available. If you eventually saw what he went for, Bjork in a second, I can't really imagine that there were better offers out there. It's just we were trying to evaluate his trade value for the longest time. Hall, just because of the year he's having, I don't think anyone believes this is the kind of player he is, but it's just it's funny to see, man. I didn't see Boston really being a suitor for him, but they, yeah, they essentially got him for nothing based off the kind of player that I think Taylor Hall is. So, yeah, I don't know if yeah. they rushed it, but this is probably the best they got. Yeah, it was totally random. I don't know why they got him. Uh, they probably saw the price and, okay, you're retaining half his salary. We can use another offensive guy, but I don't know where he fits on this team. Like, is he going to play power play minutes? Like, is he going to be taking less time on the ice? I thought he would have been a better fit on Colorado or Edmonton. Like, Boston style of play with the way he plays. We saw in Arizona the way he played in the playoffs. It was more like offensive uh, Boston is a lot of two-way type of guys, so it's going to be an interesting fit. Uh, this is like his tryout for the summer, and if it doesn't go well, maybe he's going to just take $1 million in the summer and pull that DeMarcus Cousins thing and go for a cup. If it works out for him, he'll probably want $10 million. So this is uh, going to be an interesting playoff round for him. Now, I don't want to compare this to the Rick Nash trade that they did all those years ago, but I can kind of see it being like that, right? Do you guys remember when Rick Nash went to Boston? I think it was the 2013 or 2014 playoffs, and he was coming off a a great season with the Rangers, and then he went to Boston and just stuff. It just did not work out. I guess at that time, too, we didn't really know what Rick Nash's trade value was because he was coming off a 40-goal year and then started slowly declining. He was kind of like, I don't want to compare anybody to Jeff Skinner, but at that moment in time, he was kind of flip-flopping. He was getting 40 goals, then 21. So do you guys maybe see this kind of being a similar storyline, like when Rick Nash went to Boston, or do you see Rick, do you see uh, Taylor Hall staying for the long haul in Boston? Um, I don't really see him staying for the long haul, but I think he'll be producing more numbers than he did when he was in Buffalo. You just saw in Buffalo, no one was really getting anything going. And now Eric Stahl found a home in Montreal and he's been all right. And Buffalo shipped all their pieces out. And like Taylor Hall, just we've been saying all year, this isn't him. This year has been fucking wild. You look at Taylor Hall, even though he's been on a lot of losing teams, he always produces and he's always a main factor in the game. And he's always a game changer. Uh, good or bad. So um, he's going to be on the second line, most likely with a guy like Krejci, and he's going to get some power play time on a, on a much better team. So 
I don't know if he's going to stick for the long haul, but he'll definitely get back to his form, I think. Yeah, I don't. This is going to be a rental for sure. Like Taylor Hall, the kind of numbers, I'm actually surprised it didn't work on a Buffalo. Look at the guys they have, like Eichel, Skinner, Stahl. Um, it's really weird. So for him to put those kind of numbers up isn't a good sign. Um, maybe this does help turn his career or season around in Boston because they're a winning team. But like, I don't know if this is going to be a good fit. Uh, maybe in the summer he'll find his fit. But right now, it's. Uh, I think it's going to be more of the same for the rest of the year. I mean, yeah, we, you talk about bad puck luck, and Taylor Hall has had that this year. I think he's shooting the lowest out of any forward that shot over 50 shots. I think it's at like 2.1%. Two goals, it's, it's not Taylor Hall. Um, a lot of people are questioning his ability still, which it's understandable. The last, I want to say, season and a half, he hasn't produced at that elite level. But he's still a first overall pick. He's still only 29, 30 years old. I still think he does have some... Some imp- he does have some some juice left in the tank. He's not that hard trophy player anymore. Um, I, I think really far from it to be honest. Just based off of what I've seen the last year and a half, even when he uh, when he when I saw him in Arizona, he even had some guys around him with with Kessel and Keller and Dvorak and those young those those guys are coming up, man. And and he he even couldn't really produce there. So it's kind of it's getting to that point with Taylor Hall where it's getting kind of war- uh, worrisome. He's been on a couple teams the last couple of years, like Pinello, like you said. He hasn't been on winning teams, but he's produced every year. And the only time he technically made the playoffs was the year he won the Hart Trophy. So if Boston wants to be a threat and be a, a top five team in the Eastern Conference, Taylor Hall has to bring his Hart Trophy self. And, and, but the only problem is that's behind the greatest line in hockey in Marshawn, Bergeron, and Pasternak. So it's going to be tough for him. Um, f- for fantasy purposes, I really don't know what this guy could bring. I think if you want to put him, if they want to experiment him on the top power play unit, which I obviously think they should do, you can maybe drop a defenseman uh, on the second pairing. You can go with one D as a lot of teams have done this year. So, uh, but what are your guys' initial thoughts on, on Boston's approach, Boston's chances? Do you think it gets any better, gets any worse? What do you think? What, do you guys even see Taylor Hall maybe even jumping a Marshawn or a Pasternak on the top line just to kind of experiment it? What do you guys believe? I think it um, improves their chances. Uh, I, I think I don't think they're going to mess with that top line. Maybe he'll get in there at some uh, at times, like if he's really rolling, if he's really on. But I think for the most part, I'd want to keep him with Krejci. I think it'll improve their power play. But um, – I like where he slots in. Boston, they threw me. It's still just because you didn't really hear them in on the Hall sweepstakes, so I'm still kind of surprised by it. But a lot of teams will throw their toughest matchups at that top line. So I think Hall and Krejci will get a lot of the matchups offensively. So I kind of like it for the Bruins overall. I think it improves their chances. I think it improves their chances. It just depends who they face. If they're in a tough out in the first round, against a team that style-wise matches up well with them, it might see them go to Game 7. If they're in a favorable matchup, then you can see them go through the round maybe in five games, but I don't see them going to a final with adding Taylor Hall. Unless he really turns it around and has good luck, it's going to be one of those hit-and-miss type of trades where the depth is going to have to help him carry a line or he's going to have to factor in on the third line and help out balance the lines that way. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, it's a tough division there. You know, there's a lot of great teams. I, I was saying before the paw went up that this isn't the same Boston team that I want to say two years ago. DeBrusque has kind of taken a step back. If you think about production, Krejci's getting older. Um, their bottom, their bottom forwards has just not gelled all year. Uh, guys like you know Studnicka coming in and out of the lineup. Nick Ritchie's been fairly good, but um, I still would maybe expect a little more. I think out of all the biggest surprises for me on that bottom six for them is Craig Smith. Um, he's been third and second line all year, but they've been, you know, flopping him, Richie and Kashe all year on the second line. But I, I, I just, I don't know what to believe with this Boston team right now. They're, they're in a position where they could even go to the Stanley cup finals. I wouldn't really be surprised, but at the same time, if they got bounced in the first round, I also wouldn't be surprised. You, you guys know what I mean? They're kind of like, they're good and they could be great. But they could also be really, really bad. And Tuka Rask and, and Yaroslav Halak have showed that this year age is starting to kind of get to them a little bit. You lose Tori Krug in the offseason. That's definitely Anchara. That's definitely gonna it's gonna take a big bite. But guys like Gr- Grizzlick and McAvoy, they really are gonna have to step up come the playoffs if Boston's gonna want any sort of success. But moving on, we gotta go to the Got to go to the rival. We got to go to our team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. They made a lot of moves this this uh, trade deadline. Probably the most I can remember in a very very long time. Kyle Dubas is going all in here with the with the draft picks he, he acquired uh, years in the past. We finally are taking advantage of that. We're adding a lot of depth. So to start off, we added Riley Nash on April 9th for I think it was a seventh or a, it was a seventh round pick for Riley Nash. Then we ended up getting. Nick Felino for a first and a fourth. And by the way, this the, the first round pick I don't think has that much value. It's in the top five in this year's draft. And this year's draft isn't really looking too, too strong. We then got Stefan Nuzon for a fourth. David Riddich, which to me is very, very it's this is a weird move for me, getting Riddich for a third round pick. And then of course we got Ben Hudden and Oh my God, how many guys we get? And then we got Ben Hudden and Antti Samella. So for the most part, guys, we got depth guys. But the one big, big move that we have to talk about here is Nick Felino. I mean, he beat us in last year's playoffs. Kind of that sandpaper type guy. He's a guy that could be on almost any single line on the Leafs. What are the Leafs' chances now with acquiring a guy like a Nick Felino? Oh, they're significantly improved than from the day before they made the trade. I think you said it perfectly just now. He's a sandpaper guy. He's been around for a while. You can really plug him anywhere in the lineup. Um, no, Yeah, he's, he's just another solid depth forward. No one's going to expect him to score 50, 60 points. Uh, he's been a consistent 30, 40-point guy, but like – you're on the Leafs now. What? Are, it's just another depth body. He, I think he's 33 years old. Yeah, he's got a lot of miles on him. He's been solid for a long time. The fact that they're retaining all of that money helps so much. But yeah, I think we're still first in the league, so that's the 31st pick right now. But the, yeah, you got to make those deals sometimes. It's <laughs> not a few years ago when the Leafs were finally good and they traded a second rounder for Brian Boyle. And we're like, what the fuck? Like, oh, I guess we're in that position now. So I've been doing it every year. Nick Felino, another name. They gave up a first. I'm all right with it. 
the guy's a beauty, so he's going to be solid in the locker room. He's going to be solid on the ice for us. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a much better team now with Nick Felino on it, and I'm kind of glad they went after him. Like last week we were talking about uh, some of the players that they can get. Nick Felino, I thought, was the one they should target. Uh, they brought him in, and he can fit on a line with Hyman. He can fit on a line with Simmons. He can really go all up and down the lineup in different areas. He can even play the power play if you need to, but uh, with a guy like Felino, especially retaining that kind of salary, it shows that Keefe, uh, Dubas, they're on the same page, and it shows that Dubas is more aggressive, which is good because sometimes when the Leafs were in these kind of scenarios making the playoffs, they didn't really make these kind of moves where the other team is retaining 50%. So uh, giving up the first-round pick, it's good. Uh, especially for the Blue Jackets who need it. It's good for the Leafs who get a great player in return. So it shows that the Leafs want to win now, and that's optimistic for uh, this fan base that hasn't had to see that in a long time. Yeah, I, I really, you know what, now that I'm thinking about what you need in order to go to a cup final, I think this is one of the more underrated moves um, that the Leafs have made in a very long time. We got Wayne Simmons in the offseason. A lot of people were kind of scratching their heads at that at first because the speed for Simmons isn't there. The grid is there, but the game has changed so much that what can really Wayne Simmons do? And then you see him the first couple games with the Leafs. He's scoring. He's killing penalties. He's he's you know he's amping the team up with either a fight, a big hit. So you need guys like that in order to succeed. And with a Nick Felino, what we've seen, he's not that 70-point player. He never was when he got that that year. We all knew that was just a one-year thing. Um, he's still a much better offensive player, I think, than a lot of people give him credit for. I mean, he was on Columbus playing with guys like Domi. At times, he was even on the third line. So if you can give Nick Felino some time, if, if they really want to try it and really experiment, you could maybe – put Felino in the spot that Hyman was in. You can maybe put Hyman on the second line. You have two sandpaper guys regardless on your top two lines with the skilled forwards and Marner and Matthews that we've seen take over games. Matthews has freaking 32 goals already. It's ridiculous. Tavares has kind of taken a bit of a step back, but we all anticipate that because the guy on the top line has 32 damn goals. So um, Matthews is just absolutely killing it. Tavares in a limited role is killing it. Willie has, you know, he has COVID right now, but even with Galchenyuk, we basically get him for almost nothing, comes over here and he starts producing as well. So with a Nick Foligno, um, like Alino, like you said before too, we, we have Thornton in and out of the lineup so we can rest him. You could even have Jason Spezza out of the lineup some nights, even though he has 20 points. I don't know if that's a good idea. So you have a lot of different approaches you can take with this lineup there's some nights you could take Engvall out. You could put Nuzon in. You could, you know, take Spezza out. You could put Riley Nash in. There's a lot of great depth here in Toronto. And even with, with the defense, you know, Ben Hutton, he's not the best defenseman. But if you need a little bit more offense, if you want to scratch a Dermot, if you want to scratch um, – uh, who else is there? Not Dermot, the other guy there. Not Hull. Uh, if you want to scratch Brody, like send a message, you know, you, you just – you got to do stuff like that. I think I think the Leafs are in a position where any team that's going to face Toronto, they're going to be very, very worried because now we have that depth. You can maybe give some of your star players a little bit more rest down the stretch. And when it comes to the playoffs, you now have the sandpaper guys and you still have the skill and basically the same core that you've built on for the last couple of years. So tremendous moves, from, in my opinion, for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think they're the biggest winner come this trade deadline. 
But now I just want to quickly talk about a couple other moves. Uh, the first one I want to talk about, an absolutely huge, huge deal. Came out of nowhere. It was actually the last move at the whole trade deadline. It was Washington acquiring Anthony Manta and trading Jakob Vrana, Richard Ponick, a first and a second round pick. What are your guys' thoughts on the trade? Did it surprise you? And who do you think is the absolute winner here? Ooh. Uh, I'm going to go with Washington just because I know they gave up like four pieces, but they clearly wanted Anthony Manta for a specific role. And uh, they, I know he's been rocked with injuries the last little while, but he's just one of those guys, man. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he's such a power player. He's such a great shot. He's only 25 years old. You put him in that system with all of those veteran forwards, that, that real good team for a long time. I think he's going to flourish in that system. Obviously, like I'm, I'm a fan of Jacob Vrana. I've always have been, and they gave up the first and the second, but that's clearly saying something about Manta. Like they really had their eye on that guy. So I think Manta, if he could stay healthy, God forbid, he's going to be great in that system. Yeah, I agree. This is like a guy that's perfect for that team. Like you got Ovi on one line now. You have Manta on the other. You can have Kuznetsov with Manta. Have Backstrom and Ovi. Like these two guys, Ovi and Manta on the power play together, just throwing guys around. If Manta's healthy, this is a, a great power forward duo they can have. And I think like the injury history also, he plays at Detroit. So he's relied on to really be that guy. Maybe it took over and overthought everything. I think now he's in a situation where he ha- doesn't even have to be that. He can just be the second line guy, uh, top six forward. He knows who he's coming into. Uh, great team like Washington. I think they're first in their division. So it's a really good trade for both. Washington's making an aggressive move, and Detroit continues to rebuild. They get a guy like Vrana to play with Larkin, and they got some more draft picks for the future. So uh, Detroit's not far away like in terms of rebuilding because they got Vrana, but Washington, it shows that uh, they're thinking long-term with Manta. Yeah, you guys said that perfectly. I think when when we look at this trade in the long run, you got to just look at the two names. Obviously, Vrana, a guy that's 23, 24 years old. He's hit 24 and 25 goals, respectively, the last two years on very, very, very limited minutes. You look at the minutes that he played. He was rarely on the first power play unit the last two years, trying to crack that at times. They've always favored Oshi over Vrana, especially the last two years. I think they're almost... In terms of fantasy, I think they're really, really it's it's down to the wire. I think they're like five it's like a five point difference. But Oshi plays a lot more than Vrana. So I'm really happy to see Vrana go to Detroit. Probably easily gonna be on the first line right away. If it's not the first, it's the second line. So you're either playing with Larkin or Fabry. So it's a young, exciting team in Detroit. The expectations obviously there are none. So Vrana could just go over there and enjoy playing. And if you're in a keeper league, it's, a, it's an absolute bonus for you. But, yeah, when when uh, Alino, you said it perfectly, Anthony Mantha going to the Washington Capitals, you have two power forwards in Mantha and Ovechkin. You could put Mantha on the top power play unit. You can give Oshie a little bit more rest. He's 32, 33 years old. Giving that guy about 20 minutes of ice time on the wing is a, it's a big task for a guy like him. But now you could even take some pressure off of a, Zach, of, off of a Tom Wilson. I know – uh, fans in Washington absolutely love Tom Wilson playing about 1750 a game, but maybe now 
he can slowly start to go back to the role he used to be, and that's a third liner. He can be that gritty guy like that Zach Hyman, but now you have a guy that's a six foot five guy that could skate, that could score. And in Anthony Manta, he could be, like you said, with Kuzi and Backstrom. They're in first place right now in their division for a reason. Their goaltending has been spot on all year with Vanacek and Samsonov. I love Washington. I love what they did here. I think I think Manta's the real deal. But here's here's the last here's the last trade I kind of want to talk about before we kind of move on. I want to talk about Sam Bennett. Sam Bennett going, of course. Well, there's a couple more trades we got to talk about, but Sam Bennett going to Florida for a, basically for a second round pick. What do you guys think Sam Bennett can bring to Florida in terms of production? We all know that in terms of the regular season, he's not the greatest producer, but when it comes to the playoffs, he has another gear to him. So what do you guys expect Sam Bennett to bring to Florida come playoff time? And do you see Sam Bennett ever uh, playing top minutes with Barkov and Huberto? Uh, top minutes, I'll say no. But uh, he's going to bring grit and heart, toughness, and the, just that uh, that guy that shows up to play every single night. Just a bitch to play against. Uh, in a full 82-game season, he'll get you maybe 10 to 15 goals and whatever. He'll get you fourth-line points, but I think he's kind of established his role in the NHL. There's still going to be a, a little more to give there. Maybe he'll have some better years offensively than than others, but for the most part, you know what you're getting. You're getting another depth player. Uh, yeah, I love it for Florida. They didn't really give up anything. Um, Florida's been rolling all year. A lot of their their third – the guys like Verhage have come out of nowhere, and Vitrano and, and Hornquist has been a nice surprise, and Wenberg's fit in nicely. So to add another player like Bennett down the lineup is uh, just perfect for them. Yeah, I like it for their wing, like depth. I don't think he's going to be a top-line guy, but I think they really should have went after another defenseman instead because of Ekblad's injury. Like, this is an opportunity I think they missed. They could have went to Arizona, maybe got another contract. Like, I know Jalmerson's making a lot of money and is kind of regressed a bit, but he know Quenville has had him in Chicago. There's familiarity there. I think they should have targeted a guy like that, uh, have Arizona retain the salary and make something work. And like fill a hole that Ekblad's gonna leave because Florida's a good team, but now Tampa's getting Kucherov back, so you're in a tough position. So if they're they gonna go far in the playoffs, they're gonna need another top defenseman to step up. And I just don't think their team right now, that defensively, is gonna do that for them. So right now, I think it's a good move for next year, but uh, don't think it's gonna help them all in this playoff run. I mean. I, I do agree with you in terms of Jarmelson. That would have been, I think, a great a great add-on. They got Brandon Montour for a third in, in Buffalo. I think he could be a, a – I wouldn't say – you can't really replace what Ekblad has done this year. He was he was on pace for like 45, 50 points. Um, but, you know, Keith Yandel, we've seen uh, the last month or so, he's kind of taken a step back offensively. Still probably the best offensive defenseman on the team, but you look at what he's done over the years – Kind of taking a step back, there was a time there. He was on the second power play unit because Ekblad was just going off. So, like you said, you know, Mackenzie Wegar has been one of the better, uh, even strength, like Pinello, you say for Haggy's come out of nowhere. For me, Wegar's come out of nowhere too. So you have those, these depth guys coming out of nowhere for Florida. It's definitely working out for them. Um, if Brandon Montour can bring any sort of production on the back end to Florida, 
I think they're a problem, Bobrovsky. And here's another thing with Florida. With the way that Chris Dreiger was playing this year, I thought they easily could have traded him for, like Alino, like you just mentioned, maybe another defenseman. Because Chris Dreiger, man, like if I'm Florida, he's not going to even be – I don't even think he might even be your backup in like two years because they, they drafted Spencer Knight. So, I mean, at that point, I would have just – I would have tried to trade Dreiger with – uh, his value being his highest probably that it could ever be. But unfortunately, they couldn't reach a deal. So with that being said, they got Brandon Montour. What do you guys think with this add-on on the back end? It's no it's no shutdown D or off- offensive stud, but you know, I think he's a reliable defenseman. Oh, I love it. He had a fucking we, – we say it every week just because it's been Buffalo every week. He's had an atrocious year, and I think he's so much better than what he's been showing out for. Uh, I loved him in Anaheim. I thought he was amazing. Um, yeah, kind of similar to Sam Bennett. He's uh, he's not going to play like 20-plus minutes a game, but he's going to play hard minutes, and he's going to be consistent for them, I think. So behind Yandel and behind Uyghur, playing on that second pairing there, uh, I, th- I think it's perfect for them. And they gave up, what, a third-round pick? That's I think his value is higher than that. Yeah, I agree. I think it was a good trade. Just uh, like what Chris was mentioning, Drieger missed opportunity. I think you could have packaged a third and Drieger. You could have probably got a, like a really high end offensive guy. So it, it's a good def- like defensive move for them. Helps them add depth. But in terms of getting to that next level, I think they're going to regret this trade deadline a little bit. Yeah, as well. Like. We just talked about Chris Dreiger in, in Florida. You look at what Calgary did with David Riddich. Um, he's a guy, again, he's not going to be your starting goalie. So they saw that he was putting together a pretty damn solid season at the beginning of the year. He was probably playing the most out of any goalie. Uh, when Markstrom went down with the injury, he was playing every single game because their third string is nobody. So y- now you have um, you have uh, David Riddich go to the Leafs. I think, you know, Florida should have taken a similar approach. They look at their backup having great, having a great season. You try and look at what you're shallow on on your team, and at, at this point in time, it's defense. And unfortunately, Florida did not go out and get it. But I like what you said, Pinello, with Montour. Him and him and Anaheim, I thought he was outstanding. I thought at times he was outplaying guys like Josh Manson and, and uh, Lindholm for top minutes. So I, it made sense for them to trade Montour at the time. But now, especially with the way Buffalo's played all year, the puck luck and just his plus minus, obviously it shows how bad Buffalo is. But Brandon Montour is not this bad of a defenseman. So him going to Florida, I think it's going to rejuvenate him. It's going to give him a little more confidence. But I, I agree with Alino. I think they missed a big, big opportunity without uh, with, uh, with not trading Chris Dreiger. But moving on now quickly, I want to talk about Jeff Carter going to I'll, – I'll, I'll touch on, on Colorado's moves in a minute but I want to talk more importantly about Jeff Carter going to Pittsburgh I don't think there was any salary retention maybe I think it was maybe 50% but it was basically the Kings giving up Jeff Carter who's won a cup with the Kings for two conditional picks a third and a fourth what do you guys think on this trade especially if you're the LA Kings you start that one bud yeah, I love this trade for the Kings, actually. Like, Jeff Carter, I can't believe he's finally almost done that 11-year contract that Philly gave him. It's uh, one more year. <laughs> so, if you're the Kings, you got now $5.5 of cap flexibility this summer. 
Uh, Kopitar's playing amazing right now. You got Drew Doughty's contract still there. So it gives you an opportunity to go after some guys and really retool your team, keep the like offensive guys you have, and you get rid of an aging guy who has one year left. So I think Carter's a good fit in Pittsburgh. I think he's going to play the wing. I don't see him playing center that much. I think he'll play with Crosby. And then you can move uh, Gensel maybe down with Malkin, or you can make Gensel a third-line center. Uh, and really have your offensive show up, but yeah, going forward, I think it's a uh, it's a move that I think Pittsburgh might make again in the summer. I think Carter will probably get traded at the draft uh, for something else, and uh, this will be a good rental for them for this year. Get his points up, and then once teams see him play with Crosby, get some goals, they'll be like, yeah, now we can sell him for another second rounder, move up in the draft. So I think Berkey's got his eyes on someone else. Yeah, for uh, for the Kings, it was time. Like he's put a lot of work into there. He's a multiple time Stanley Cup champion. It's a great move for the Kings. I don't think anyone's gonna question that one. But for Pittsburgh now, like Carter doesn't have to be your best second or even third best player. He's behind Crosby and Malkin and Gensel and Zucker and Rust and there's that crop of forwards there. It really just it all comes to staying healthy. Because Jeff Carter's had a ton of injury issues. If he could stay healthy and throw any type of production out there, like it's it's definitely going to help that entire team. So Pittsburgh's a threat every year. If you throw Jeff Carter in there, oh God, watch out! Exactly. That's what I was going to say. I mean, like Jeff Carter. Yes, I think he's thirty five, thirty six years old. He's on his last legs, but man. If there's one guy that could start going, and if it's a team that can get Jeff Carter going, I think it's Pittsburgh with Crosby and Malkin. Like we've seen Crosby make players out of Dupuis, and and I mean Gunsel, he's he's been highly touted, but no one really saw him being this good. So um, if Jeff Carter, if you could put him on a line with Malkin or Crosby, like you said, or on a power play, man, it's going to be fun to see. Malkin is six four. Carter, I think, is the same. You put them both on that line. They're two horses coming at you. And then on the top line, Rust, Crosby, and Gunsel. It's pretty scary, man, to think. If Tristan Jari continues to play like he is right now, oh, man, I, I wouldn't want to face Pittsburgh in the playoffs. So especially with this deal being done, all the playoff experience that Jeff Carter has, that's another veteran going to Pittsburgh. If I'm Carolina and the Islanders, who are I believe are ahead of Pittsburgh, I'd be kind of concerned with this move. But moving on, I now want to talk about the, the they are probably the best team in the league other than the Leafs, the Colorado Avalanche. They ended up making some moves in the at the deadline. The first one that I want to talk about, absolutely huge, in my opinion, getting Devin Dubnik as a backup. I mean, Frank Koo, we saw this year, he's been actually surprisingly pretty good. Devin Dubnik hasn't worked out in San Jose. Martin Jones surprisingly has tremendously outplayed Dubnik. So the Avs get Dubnik as that backup guy. He's he's a veteran. You have It's pretty funny that you have Grubauer, who, again, 28, 29 years old, first year as a starter, or maybe, no, his first, second year as a starter, killing it. One of the best goalies in the league, leads the league and wins. And now you have a veteran in Devin Dubnik, and you basically get him for a fifth rounder and Craig Paterne. So basically nothing. What are your guys' thoughts on this gamble? for Colorado to have this, uh, to have Devin Dubnik as their backup. Oh, it's not a gamble. They gave up nothing. It's, <laughs> it's solid for the ads. I mean, Grubauer, he's, um, he's been rolling the last couple of years, but 
At the same, with that being said, he's only been a starter for a couple of years. He's been playing backup in Washington the whole time. Like everyone's saying, Colorado's going to win the cup, and you look at Grubauer, and he's still getting his feet wet as a starter. So picking up a guy like Devin Dubnik to take off some of the pressure, and Dubnik's been through a lot of bullshit in his career. So 35, 36 years old, he's coming into a fucking brilliant situation in Colorado. Um, yeah, I like it to take some of the pressure off the kid. Yeah, I like it too. I think it's a good move for Colorado because we saw last year Hutchison when uh, he had to come in there. They were running out of goalies and depth. So uh, going forward, I see this stabilizing the position, allow Colorado to continue being that team that they are. Nate the Great over there is going to continue producing. So I think this is just adding stability for when they go to the playoffs in case somebody gets injured. Exactly. I absolutely love it for them. Uh, it doesn't hurt to get Dubnik here at this point in time. Grubauer, like you guys said, two years in a row being a starter. Uh, he's been consistent, but you know, at times you, you still got to question if if he can you know be your number one goalie for five plus years. So I think at this point in time, they're just doing it for depth. If if uh, if you see maybe Grubauer have a really really bad playoff game, maybe you could put Dubnik in. Um, but other than that, I, th- I think it just bolsters their, their roster even more. Even with this other move they made, uh, they got Carl Soderberg back and they just traded two prospects and Ryder Rolston and Josh Dickinson. I don't know what their trade value is, but Carl Soderberg can get you 20 goals. We saw last year he, he actually had a great year. I don't know if it was last year or two years ago with Colorado. So you could put him now on the third, fourth line. You could uh, have Soderberg and Joe go third forward as your uh, bottom pairing centers. That's unreal. And then, you have, of course, you have Kadri McKinnon. What are you guys' thoughts on uh, the Avs getting Carl Soderberg back? Yeah, it's, um, it's a familiar face. So I don't think he has to adjust to a whole lot. He's played with most of these guys before. So uh, I was just thinking about when you said his name. You remember we went to that game? And he scored the fucking hat trick, and all the big guys did nothing. Yeah, that was I do. the first thing I thought of. <laughs> Soderbergh, but uh, yeah, Soderbergh's been around too. Like he had a. I remember he gave him with so much promise. He's just one of those European guys that everyone fucking raved about, and then he settled into a nice, you know, second, third line player, and he's got skill to his game, and he's developed a lot of grit throughout the way. So. He's coming back into a familiar situation. Uh, I think it's all, yeah, Colorado had a nice day. <laughs> yeah, perfect for their team, their depth. Perfect third line center for them right now. Uh, I don't know if he can go on the wing, like if they'll experiment with that, but uh, for their team right now, it really helps to get a guy, especially who's been on the team recently, to come in and doesn't have to adapt too much to it or adjust this game. So I think it's a nice fit for them and their team, like Colorado. And the standings is going to only help them even more in the playoffs. Yeah, as well, I want to quickly now move on, finish this, I guess, finish the trade deadline with the, again, this wasn't during the trade deadline, but we forgot to mention it. Kyle Palmieri and Travis Zajac, we mentioned, you know, Jeff Carter bolstering the the Pittsburgh Penguins offense. You now have Kyle Palmieri and Travis Zajac go to the New York Islanders. They're going to bolster their offense as well. What are your guys' thoughts on this deal? The Devils ended up getting back A.J. Greer, Mason Jost, a first-round pick and a fourth-round pick. Do you think the Devils got enough? And what do you think Kyle Palmieri and Travis Sajak can bring to this Islanders team? Oh, 
they pick up uh, two solid, consistent forwards. Paul Mary's really, I think I said it last week, he's just, he progresses a little bit every single year. He's that 20 to 30 goal guy. Um, the Islanders, they have, other than like Barzell, a lot of their forwards are just kind of, they're nice players and they all fit in well with that system and they, they all play so well together. So putting a guy like Paul Mary there, it's going to help the power play. You'll um, play second or third line. Yeah, I think he's going to fit in nice. And Zajac too, similar to Carter. He's just got to stay healthy. He's not on Carter's lo- level, but um, Zajac's had a ton of injury issues over the years, but he's a veteran guy. He's in his mid-30s now. I think he's going to do a lot for that locker room. So I think the Islanders did pretty well with that one. Oh, Lou loves his former New Jersey Devils, doesn't he? Holy, this is like uh, 2011 with this guy. I'm surprised he didn't go after Zach Parisi again, like that trade they had last year. Surprised he didn't go and revisit that. I think that would have been perfect. Bring Parise too with Zajac and Palmieri, reunite that line on the Islanders. That would have set them apart from a lot of teams. And uh, just like Palmieri going in, I think he's a better fit. Uh, I know Zajac, they retain the salary, so... Going forward, that's going to help them a lot. They're probably both going to resign because Lou's going to say, "Yeah, we'll give you four million each, nice long-term deal," and he's going to put the Islanders in cap hell a little bit for probably the next few years, and he'll just leave and go somewhere else and get another New Jersey Devil to come with them. So, I think Lou's just loyal. That's a GM you want—a loyal to his team kind of guy. What did the, uh, what did they get back again? Can you save the trade? Uh, they got AJ Greer, Mason Jost, a, f- a first and a fourth. Wow, so first. First is a that's probably like twenty points overall. So yeah, it's yeah. it's it's not bad. I mean, Palmieri, a, a former thirty goal scorer, um, he's not going to be that type of player. I still think he could be on the first line now with Anders Lee out of the uh, for the year. So if you put Palmieri on the top line, um, I was going to say if anything, this probably. With Anders Lee out, I think Kiefer Bellows has had the most pressure out of any forward on that team. I mean, you you could pretty much assume that Josh Bailey's going to get you fifty five points. Uh, like he's probably the the primary uh, playmaker on that team. And then of course, well, it's Barzell, but then it's Bailey. But Barzell, this is a year for me where I can start seeing this guy creep into top twenty territory. Uh, the way I've seen Barzell play, he's elusive. He's skilled. He's he's a game changer. Now you. You have a guy like Kyle Palmieri who can get you 30 goals. You put him on the top power play unit, he has a lethal shot. He has, for a guy that actually hasn't really, like, you know, but it's that Kyle Palmieri has, I think, is just, it's a, it's, a, it's a game changer. And especially playing with a guy like a Matt Barzell. Travis Zajac's another guy. You know, Pinello, you know, I've been a big Devils fan for a while. This is a, a lifelong is a lifelong New Jersey Devil. He's been there since I want to say, like oh seven oh eight. So seeing Zajac move on, it's kind of hard, but uh, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see where they put him in the lineup. Does he take Zizekas's spot? Does uh, he take maybe a Wallstrom who's been in and out of the lineup? So it's going to be interesting to see where the Islanders kind of go the rest of the way. I still think like like Alino said with Lou, he loves his old guys. Going back to the Islanders. Definitely gonna have to Palmieri. I don't know if he's gonna have to shave that beard. He's had that beard for a very long time. So if uh, if the playoffs are coming, I don't know if uh, Kyle Palmieri's gonna look like a different human being. So with that being said, we got to monitor that. 
but moving forward, I quickly want to bring, I forgot it. I completely forgot about this, this deal. It, it looks like a big deal, but it really isn't. So on April 8th, Chicago also made another move. They got Brett Connolly, Riley Stillman, first round pick in Henrik Borgstrom and a seventh rounder for Lucas Carlson, a defenseman and Lucas Walmart going to Florida. So we got to remember they got Sam Bennett, they got Brandon Montour, and now you get Lucas Walmart at center. Guys like Verhege, Vitrano are rolling. Does, would, do you guys really think it was worth it for Florida to give up Henrik Borgstrom and Brett Connolly for a third-line player in Lucas Walmart? Take that one. Yeah, I don't know if what they were thinking, <laughs> <laughs> but I think they have uh, their eyes on Patrick Kane. Maybe in the summer. Because <laughs> I remember they had that trade in the works. And I think Quenville is uh, he's getting the message across to management. I think they, they're low-key working on that deal. And this could just be part one of that. Get the money working for both teams. Maybe a third team will be involved. But I think this is going to lead to a Patrick Kane trade. So I'll leave it there. I don't get why they traded Borkstrom. I don't really have more than that. Because this is like, yeah, it's one of those, it's a lot of names on paper, but it's a lot of like, all these guys might be on different teams again next year. But I thought Borgstrom would have been the guy to stick there. So that one kind of threw me off. I think the only defense I have for Florida is, I mean, their depth is ridiculous right now. Like he's a guy to me, when you look at forwards, it's kind of like the same situation with Sandin on Toronto. He want like We want him to play so bad and he just can't crack the lineup. We went out, we got Muzzin, we got Brody, Dermot's been unreal all year. You know, even Justin Hall. I think he's probably been the biggest surprise for me the last two years. You look at the Leafs, Justin Hall. No, like in my opinion, two years ago, I thought this guy had no business being a, you know, a consistent player on this team. And he's proven it wrong 100%. So um, I, I see that being a similar situation. I think Borgstrom... I just didn't really see him playing meaningful minutes. This is a guy where he's a, if you're a first round pick, you got to play top six minutes. I think as soon as you make the team, it bolsters the confidence. It gets them going. And unfortunately, no, you have Alex Barkov, you know, you, you have guys like Verhege and Vitrano. These guys have been going off all season and even ended up getting rid of Trocek too. So, I mean, to me, it doesn't make sense to get rid of Borgstrom even with Owen Tippett, uh, this guy was, I think, a 10th, 11th overall pick. He's re- he's barely played the first two, three years. So I don't know if uh, I don't know if Florida really has faith in their their first round picks. I don't know if they're bust. I don't know what's going on there. But their depth is unreal. I think they just wanted to take a flyer here, and you know, it's, it's a new change of scenery for Borgstrom, no doubt about it. They they have three. Absolutely young center Chicago in Dylan Strom, Kirby Dock, and now Henrik Borgstrom. So you can maybe, if you're a Chicago fan, I'd probably love this move. Uh, we all know that Chicago is not in a position to be a contender right now, even though they've surprised us this year with Lankinen and, you know, Patrick Kane and Debrinket coming back to form. But other than that, I absolutely love it for Chicago getting Henrik Borgstrom. But that's, that's my last, uh, that's my last trade for the NHL. Now we got to go on to the show of immortals. It was a two-night extravaganza. Night one was absolutely incredible. Alino, you said it first. I thought the main. I thought the main event: Bianca Belair, Sasha Banks. 
I thought that just absolutely tore the house down. Even, you know, seeing fans there was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it actually kind of threw me off seeing them, you know, sit in the front row. Um, but I guess I'll start off. I guess we'll go through the card. Uh, we'll quickly discuss every match, the result. I'll start off with you, uh, uh, Pinello. So we started with the WWE title, and we all thought at the time, I think it was a week or two weeks ago, we said that it shouldn't open. It ended up opening the show. Bobby Lashley ends up retaining through submission. What were your thoughts on Drew losing? And do you see Bobby Lashley feuding with Brock Lesnar moving forward? Oh, sure. I mean, that's been a match everyone's been looking forward to since since the rumors of Lashley returning, let alone his actual return. But I don't have an issue with Drew losing. The way the, the Hurt business has been built the last fuck almost a year it feels like and then the last few months specifically with Bobby just exploding through the roof uh I know we talked about them opening could be it could be a hit or miss but they really hit on this one and it was a solid fucking match and Drew got a lot of stuff in but Bobby just pulled through in the end and um still the WWE champion Drew beat Brock last year at Mania so Bobby beating Drew now like yeah like I could definitely see him and Brock meeting up at some point, but you got to be happy for Lashley after being misused his first run and uh, misused big time his first year back. They're finally making up for it now. And uh, he beat Drew McIntyre for the WWE championship at WrestleMania. That's, that's fucking insane. Oh yeah. The, the big man, the almighty saw the first time he took the title off Drew. Uh, looked online, TNA Slammiversary 2016. <laughs> he took it off him, so they redid it. Uh, this time he made him pass. So I like the ending, though. It was kind of creative how MVP just uh, threw him off guard, and then all of a sudden he uh, put that hurt lock on him, and instead of tapping out, they made him pass out, so it saves Drew, protects him, makes Bobby's finish look strong, so... Uh, this is a perfect way to start the show. I actually thought this was the match of the night. This in the main event, it was really close, neck and neck, but they both delivered, uh, unlike the second night, uh, which we'll get into after. But uh, going forward, though, I think that's a perfect way. Like They took away the Hurt business and everything about it, which was too soon. A lot of fans were upset about that. But uh, the way Bobby and MVP are going, you know, this match has to happen. So... Uh, Looking forward to whenever this uh, big monster comes out of the fucking forest in Saskatchewan and finally shows up. And uh, him and Bobby can go at it. It should be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely loved it, too. I really thought Drew was going to win, and I thought they were going to backlash the shit out of it. I thought thought he was going to get booed out of the building. But thank God uh, Bobby Lashley retained here. I was saying to Pinello yesterday, this is a guy that we should all be just so, so happy for. Even if you boo Bobby Lashley, like it doesn't matter. You have to respect how hard he's worked to get to the position he's at. Like we're talking about last year, this guy was facing Aleister Black with Lana and now he's a WWE (laughs) champion and he's beating Drew McIntyre. Like that's a complete 180. You know what I mean? So I got to give this guy credit for, you know, sticking with it. His first run wasn't that good. Even, you know, he faced Finn Balor for the Intercontinental title. I even thought that feud at at the time, you have those two names. I think it kind of disappointed. So Seeing this guy, you know, align with MVP since day one, it's worked out. You know, making Drew McIntyre pass out at WrestleMania, like Pinello said, that's that's fucking huge. So 
this guy's momentum right now, it looks like he can't be stopped. And I'm loving every single minute of this run. So uh, kudos to WWE for not letting Drew win this. So moving on, uh, I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to talk about the tag team turmoil match. I'm sorry. <laughs> just, just don't want to talk about that. So then I'll talk about the next singles match we had, which was Cesaro versus Seth Rollins. Cesaro actually getting the win here. Seth Rollins has lost back-to-back WrestleManias. And is it safe to say we could start maybe calling Seth Rollins Shawn Michaels? This guy's starting to put people over at WrestleMania in singles matches. What were your guys' thoughts on this dream singles match at Mania? Alino, Pinello, I know you guys love both these guys. What was your thoughts on this match? Yeah, this was a, uh, well, for me, I'm sure for all of us, it was a win-win situation. It was because um, you know they're going to produce. They're two very consistent guys. They always are. It doesn't really matter who they're going up against. If you're taking out Cesaro and Rollins and you're the other guy, you're in good shape. So both of these guys together, it wasn't going to fail. It's just a matter of how much time they got. This was an awesome match. So I think Cesaro getting the win, a little surprise. Uh, I just I was just happy that Cesaro was in that spot. Like he had a singles match at WrestleMania. He's not in the fucking battle royal where he just gets lost with fifty other guys and to be taken on Seth Rollins of all people. Like that's also insane. But uh, I'm gonna relax with the Shawn Michaels comment because that's just next level. But uh, yeah, Seth is uh, he's got a nice little resume at Mania there. Yeah, I agree. Everything you said. Uh, I'm actually surprised too. Like, I thought maybe Seth would have gone over here after that kind of match. And then they were, because the pay per view after this, they changed it from Money in the Bank. To now it's called WrestleMania Backlash. So I thought for sure they would have put this on that card and had Cesaro get the win there, build interest more. Uh, but they didn't. I'm all right with it. I think both guys don't get hurt out of this. Like Seth losing his second WrestleMania doesn't really do anything. So it only helps him going into the next pay-per-view and then money in the bank, which both these guys will probably be in. So uh, it is interesting on SmackDown. Like I like how they built this up. Disappointed Shinsuke wasn't involved on the card. Uh, Last year, like Dolph Ziggler got his singles match in a performance center. Would have been nice to see him get a singles match at WrestleMania, but I guess there's always next year with uh, those guys. Yeah, it's sad to it's sad to think about, but you know the WWE roster is so big. So if there's not a six man intercontinental U.S. ladder match, then unfortunately those type of guys probably won't be on the show. But like Pinello, like you said, I agree with you 100. percent I love Cesaro being in this spot. He's been underutilized at this time of year for the longest time since 30 when he won the Andre the Giant. That was his biggest moment. Now you could look, I think this might be a, I don't know if it's as big, but it's right there, you know, beating Seth Rollins at WrestleMania. That's like, it didn't give, it wasn't a 20 minute masterpiece, but you know, it did its job. It was a great singles match. And I I don't, I really want to say that, you know, with Cesaro beating Seth Rollins, I want to see Cesaro take on Roman Reigns. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's something I think that we should think about, especially with Cesaro beating a guy like Rollins at Mania. But up next, this is probably one of my favorite matches I'm going to talk about today. It was the tag team titles. The Raw tag team titles were on the line. And it was very predictable, but I loved every single minute of it. AJ Styles and Omos become the new Raw tag team champions. Alino, I definitely have to start with this with you. What were your thoughts on Omos' debut? And what were your thoughts on the overall match? 
Yeah, this match killed me. Just the way they built it up. They actually made the New Days look like heels when they were uh, making fun of AJ for can't, like not getting to the corner. Then they were saying they're cutting the ring in half. Almost eventually gets in the ring, and it was a complete disaster for the New Day after that. They just got thrown around. I think this was perfect, the way they built them. And uh, the move at the end, the way he pinned them, puts a foot on their chest, and that was the end of the match. This was perfect for almost AJ. I'm liking this duo. Uh, I hope they give them time as champs. I hope it's not just a transitional thing for uh, Raw's division, but like going forward, I want to see almost in the ring more. This guy cracks me up. Yeah, this was all about almost and the build to him finally getting into the match. They uh, didn't have to be a technical showcase. They did it perfectly the way uh, the way that they played it off. So. That's crazy. They uh, they take almost in, and New Days are like fucking nine-time tag team champions, and he just disposed of them like nothing. So Grand Slam AJ over there. It's a nice little spot in the card. There it is. Uh, up next we had was the Steel Cage match. Braun Strowman, Shane McMahon. I think this was also another predictable match. Shane being the sicko that he is, of course, has to get that extreme spot. He got it. He falls off. Steel Cage, blah, blah, blah. What were your guys' thoughts on this? Um, and does this really do anything for Braun Strowman moving forward? No, but uh, <laughs> it was nice to see Shane get fucking thrown off the top of the cage, which that needs to fucking relax. Like, he's in his 50s. Can't be doing swanton bombs off fucking 20-foot-high steel cage. But uh, hopefully he's all right. It was nice to see his ass get whipped a little bit by Braun. And... Uh, yeah, this was, this was all right. I don't think it furthers Strowman, though, going forward. I actually thought Shane was going to win here. When he climbed down, I'm like, are they actually doing this? Like, Braun is getting buried? <laughs> What's going on here? And then he grabs him and lifts him over, rips open that uh, side wall there of the cage. And, yeah, I agree with you. Shane, he, Shane's too rich for this. Like, he's getting thrown off cages, jumping off stuff. Like, he needs to relax in his 50s. Like, he's going to hurt something. He's going to break a hip. Like, uh, let's call it a day here. You don't have to do this crazy stuff and fly around. Uh, it was good. That was a good moment for Braun. It's not going to do anything for him going forward, but it was a good moment at WrestleMania, better than being in a battle royal. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, we've said it for years now that Braun Strowman come mania, it kind of gets shafted. So I guess this is his moment. This is where, you know, he throws Shane off, gets the win, gets that moment. You know, I think it was about 11 minutes, same as – uh. Cesaro and Rollins getting that amount of time. I think for a guy like Braun, it's huge, but it's it's just the way that he's kind of gone the last three, four years. Very, very underwhelming for me. And uh, it's unfortunate, but, you know, getting Shane McMahon, that's going to fill seats. A lot of people are intrigued with how he performs. He's like I said, he's a sicko. He likes jumping off stuff. So people love that. Um, but at times people also boo the shit out of Shane. So regardless, he's going to fill seats. So, it made sense here for them to have this type of match, but it was another predictable result. But then, of course, this match to me surprised me the most. The tag team match, Bad Bunny and Damian Priest versus The Miz and John Morris. And this is where I thought I thought that The Miz kind of was going to – I thought he was going to surprise us and get the win here. Um, but Bad Bunny and Damian Priest get the win. Bad Bunny absolutely looked unreal. Oh, my God. Absolutely surprising. The entrances were fun, too. I think B, I think Bad Bunny actually outperformed Damian Priest here, just based off of the surprise factor 
I think Bad Bunny was the MVP in this match, especially it went on 15 minutes. This absolutely overachieved, and I enjoyed every minute of it. What did you guys think of this tag team match? Yeah, uh, Miz and Morrison did a solid job making him look good, but uh, I'm going to put Bad Bunny up there with the greatest celebrity performances of all time with Stephen Amell back from SummerSlam all those years ago. I thought that, yeah, he looks, I don't, I don't really know what to expect. I thought he'd get a few shots in, but you can tell he's been putting the work in over the last little while. Uh, he did a solid job. Priest didn't really help him out a whole lot, but when he came in, he fucking bulldozed through everyone. So again, this was a nice fun little spot in the card. So yeah, I think everyone did well. Yeah. Just, uh, this match as a whole, I wasn't expecting it to obviously be like that. So it was a nice surprise that it turned out the way it did. Um, like even looking at bad bunny, like clearly they worked with them at the performance center, uh, actually built them up and like made sure this match wasn't like one of those other kind of celebrity matches where they get in, they look sloppy and it's just a rough night for everyone involved. So it just shows also the Miz and John Morrison are good pros as uh, Mike Babcock would say. They did what they're asked. They came in there, made them look good, put in a solid shift. And uh, that, I don't know what they were called, a bunny destroyer, that Canadian destroyer uh, type of move that Bad Bunny did. If you look at John Morrison, how he sold that, that's perfect. So John Morrison deserves a raise. Uh, he deserves a big push. So does a Miz. Going to be interesting to see what they do going forward. And like Damian Priest did get somewhat of a moment, but. Like after this, they have to really build him more because he might get lost in the shuffle because everyone's obviously talking about Bad Bunny. Exactly, yeah. I thought Priest would have been the guy like what almost was. Like he just goes in and kind of destroys everyone and gets the pin. But Bad Bunny to me was the guy here where it's like, holy crap, this guy doesn't really belong here and he's surprising the shit out of everyone. This is the talking point. This is where guys like Priest and his momentum kind of gets lost. So... If they want to keep Priest being a threat, he's got to consistently be a huge, huge factor on Raw moving forward. But now I want to get to the main event. This match was absolutely amazing. Uh, Bianca Belair defeating Sasha Banks to become the SmackDown Women's Champion. I got to ask this question, and I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but after what I saw from Sasha Banks, to me, she is the best women's wrestler right now in the WWE, and it's not even close. So... With that being said, with that statement, I love her putting Bianca Belair over here. I love the green and blue hair, full-on heel, Sasha Banks. Bianca gets her moment. This was absolutely incredible. I think this run is going to be awesome with Bianca. What did you guys think in this match? I think it absolutely blew everyone out of the water in terms of expectations. Yeah, um... I don't know how surprised I am with that hot take just because when you look at Sasha's resume and she's had those fucking crazy long barn burner matches with a lot of women. So for it to happen on a stage in the main event of WrestleMania with a newcomer like Bianca Belair, that, that says a lot about Sasha. So this match was amazing. Uh, it was the right decision for it to close. They both got all their moves in. They gave it a ton of time. And for Bianca to get the win, that's they got a new star in the making uh, if they didn't have one already. And, you know, Sasha, Sasha's a, a natural-born superstar, and she's going to she's gonna be one of the main women for the next little while. Um, 
So uh, for her to close WrestleMania on night one, that, that's a big step in her career and for Bianca to get the win and for her to continue to establish herself. Um, yeah, just wins all around on night one. Yeah, this was just as good as that opening match with Bobby and Drew, and it was their own different type of style. Like Bobby and Drew was more the hard-hitting match. This was more technical, and they had some of the spots there, but... The one thing I like about this main eventing compared to the last women's main event at uh, 35 when they had the triple threat, that one seemed a lot more forced for a main event just because who they had in the match. And the story going into that WrestleMania, Kofi, Daniel Bryan, that should have been the main event. This one, it kind of was more organic where when it was announced as a main event, you're like, you know what? I can see that. That deserves a spot. So uh, for that, they delivered, and it seemed more of a real main event than that other one was. So, uh, yeah, that also this spot here, she's holding the hair, and she used it as a weapon. That was fucking vicious. <laughs> like, that sound, when uh, it just came off, you listen to that full blast, and then the damage it did afterwards, perfect end to the match. Um, and going on SmackDown, they got a star there, Bianca Belair, Royal Rumble winner, and uh, now the new champ. So, they did everything you wanted in the main event. It delivered. And uh, going forward now, it's going to be interesting to see who she wrestles next. I think somewhere I read online that Sasha's uh, taking time off or filming something. So it's going to be interesting who steps up. Yeah, I absolutely love night one. It was absolutely awesome. Moving the night two quickly, and then we'll end it. So we started off with a very underwhelming I thought this was terrible. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Randy Orton in the thing. <laughs> We're freaking, I'm, I'm anticipating this to be like one of the greatest. Because, man, like they put so much effort into building this match for like two months. And the result was just so disappointing. Just like, you know what this reminded me of? This reminded me of Alexa Bliss's Royal Rumble performance. Like it was that level of disappointing for me. I, I like... First of all, you open the show, Randy Orton, I, you got to love the white tights. We never see Randy Rock white. This guy comes out copying Edge or Edge copying Randy, both wearing white. It was hilarious. Randy pulling it back to 2004 with the white tights comes out. And, of course, Alexa, Alexa Bliss, we see it right here, stares down the Fiend and costs him the match. I mean, I really don't know what to make of this. Um, is Alexa Bliss a bigger character and more valuable character than the fiend at this point in time because i'm starting to get that kind of vibe but uh, what were your guys thoughts on this match randy has beaten bray wyatt two times at wrestlemania now is it safe to say that bray wyatt just can't get a break <laughs> this is a weird one i thought everything was good up until a bliss turn but then like they do that with the cliffhangers. So we're going to get answers. And if we don't, people are going to stop caring real quick. So I'm excited to see where they go with Bliss. Like when it happened, I was like, what the fuck are they actually doing? I didn't think it'd go that way at all. But yeah, I, you know what? I see the Fiend's entrance and just the way Randy was so scared. And I'm just like, that's that's good enough for me. But everything in between was kind of uh, kind of threw me off. I'd say overall it was it was an average segment. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was underwhelming based on the build. Like, I agree with Chris. Like, the Fiend can't catch a break. He got set on fire. Um, <laughs> and now it's... He got his manager, Buddy, and the Firefly Funhouse playground, whatever they're calling it, all of a sudden leaking this black crap all over. So, 
<laughs> making a mess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then after like the fiend and that firefly finals the next night he's like uh she had a new puppet so now rambling rabbit has an enemy uh this is going to be uh wacky programming usa network clearly wants it so that's all on them whatever happens here uh i don't know why they did it i'm not even a fan because i think the fiend should have like had more in this match but orton getting the win i'm not too uh disappointed with thought he should have won the match but uh, going forward, I don't know what they're going to do with the poor Fiend. Yeah, the thing that throws me off the most is how well his match with John Cena went last year. And I know it was cinematic, and I know it was different, but like that's the type of match I really want. Like I didn't want to see a cinematic match here just because of the build. But if I knew it was going to amount to this, then I would have wanted a cinematic match for sure. But like like Pinello said, like we need answers. Because if we don't get answers soon, I'm done with this. I'm done with... Alexa Bliss, we, we're all saying that Bliss should hit, get a punt to the face, and then she helps Randy win. So, like, I don't, I don't know what what happened here. Um, the stare down to me was comical. It's like, buddy, you're in the middle of a match. <laughs> Stop staring at, at your wife or whatever, whoever this girl Alexa Bliss is supposed to be. Turns around, loses. I mean, I love it for Randy because he's been one of the hottest superstars last year. But to do it in this type of way. Like like you like you said, Alino, very underwhelming. But moving on, and again, it was very underwhelming too because it opened. So that was another another that kind of threw me off. Um, then I'm not going to talk about the tag team match for the women's because no, just a disaster. Nia and Shayna retaining. We all saw that coming. And then we got four straight singles matches on night two. All of them were pretty damn solid. We're going to start this one off with the paparazzi. The documentarist, Sami Zayn with Logan Paul taking on Kevin Owens. What did you guys think of this? I thought the expectations were a little bit too high. I still thought they they did a tremendous job. They gave it about 10 minutes. What were your guys' thoughts on this one? <laughs> Just a funny breeze over the last match. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's because it's fucking KO and Sami Zayn. And everyone sees all the... Everyone's so familiar about all their matches over the last 15 years, let alone the last five. So I don't think anyone expected they would get a ton of time. If they did, they'd probably tear the fucking house down. But I, I thought they did well together. Uh, Owens getting the win here was pretty, yeah, predictable. But I, I love the Paul fucking introducing him into that whole thing with Sami Zayn. And Sami's just been absolutely crazy the last little while. And he plays that role so well. And just seeing both of them get stunned at Mania was, uh, that's the payoff. So high fives all around. Yeah, two good Canadian kids, Kevin Owens and Sami <laughs> Zayn. They made something out of nothing. Uh, this match really was thrown together, even in the build. Like they made it work. And then after the match, just seeing Sami Zayn go nuts, I think it's perfect for his character. Like it didn't, it doesn't mean he's going to get lost in the shuffle now because now they have to continue going on. Sami Zayn's probably going to get even crazier. And Kevin Owens gets another WrestleMania moment with the stunner on Logan Paul. Uh, really good to see Kevin Owens get the win here. I thought they were going to maybe have Sammy win by like cheating, but it probably would have took away from the feud. I think this match, they're going to probably have another one at Backlash, so I'm looking forward to that if they do. And uh, another one for Kevin Owens. Good Canadian boy. Boys, you know what I just noticed? Sami Zayn has faced Daniel Bryan and Kevin Owens the last two years of WrestleMania. 
<laughs> That's <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Absolutely love it for Sammy. But uh, the next match we had was Sheamus versus Riddle. Like I said before the pod, I saw Sheamus winning this from a mile away. What were your guys' thoughts on this? Should we have a new U.S. champion in Sheamus? Um, and what do you think is next for Matt Riddle? Oh, man. Uh, this match was awesome. Just two hard-hitting physical guys who went back and forth for such a, a long time. And then Sheamus bested him in the end. He's got that WrestleMania experience. I'm not surprised. Wins that U.S. title back. Sheamus's resume is low-key one of the fucking greatest things in history. When you look at everything he's accomplished, it's just because he's never that main piece that you took uh, when you tune in. Um, but like, man, Sheamus coming back from injury too over the last couple of years, getting a singles match at WrestleMania for a championship, like that's impressive on his part for Matt Riddle to already be in that position. This this is this is a feel good WrestleMania. A lot of uh, segments, so yeah, this match was solid for me. Yeah, it was it was better than I expected. I thought they were going to give him like not a lot of time just because this title never really gets any time at WrestleMania, but like Sheamus considering what he uh was planned to go into to what he got, they made this is another match he made the best of what they had. Like Sheamus and the Miz, I thought should have been in that Bobby Lashley and Drew match to make it multi-man, but they ended up going in different directions, and you have Sheamus and Riddle, and uh, that moment at the end, I know he slipped off the rope, and that was probably supposed to be the finish, but with what you see, how they finished it, I think it made up for it. It was uh, more of a devastating end to Riddle, uh, going for that moonsault off uh, the ropes there, and then gets a bro kick right to the jaw. Perfect timing by Sheamus. The fella gets another title. And uh, goes on another run here. I hope Riddle isn't in. It's like another. He's going to take the title in two weeks. I hope they have something else planned for him. Exactly. And another guy that got another title, Apollo Cruz, defeating Big E for the Intercontinental Title. We saw that guy help Apollo Cruz win here. This was, pro- I think, this was the shortest match on the whole show. Six minutes. Um, it's really a shame. We, we, me. I mean, I'll, you know, me and you. I don't know about Pinello, but I'm pretty sure me and you were. At one point, building Biggie up to be, maybe even take on Roman Reigns. So seeing him lose so quickly to Apollo Cruz, what do you think this means for Apollo Cruz moving forward? Because it's a new character, a new approach, and I think WWE is finally starting to see Apollo's potential here. Yeah, I think they are. Like the only thing with Apollo Cruz, like he was good in the ring this whole time. It's just his character and promos lacked. And like he doesn't really get the audience to really care about him. Like he just does the same thing in the promos. This whole heel turn, changing his accent, doing something different. Now this guy, the one that was on Raw Underground, comes with him. He's gonna be like his almost, I guess. It fits, but like I hope they don't get into that same pattern. Like as soon as he loses a title in the future, they're just gonna forget all about him. So hopefully it helps him. Biggie, I think, is just gonna go on and be feuding with guys for the main event and then eventually be in the money of the bank match so him i'm not too worried about apollo cruz even though he has a title i'm still a little worried about what they're gonna do with him it's good that they reinvented him though that they revamped him because like the second he got called up from nxt it was just yeah here's this nice little athletic guy enjoy him for three minutes on the show and then we'll do nothing for him and it's been like that for like two years the second they turned him heel and they did this whole I don't know what the hell they did with his character, but all the ideas. Um, 
he's he's been on every week and they've been giving him time and they've been investing into his character and it's just been awesome and it's it was less than 10 minutes but they beat the fucking shit out of each other like it was short and sweet and to the point and it was intense and i think it did its job and i think i'm pretty sure the feud's going to continue after this but uh, yeah do you, do you guys see uh, biggie yeah. maybe elevating his game well i don't see why not biggie's yeah, just that sure. guy He's just that guy. I think he can do anything. Like, you guys have been pumping him up, like you said, but he's one of those, like, tag team specialists. Single. It doesn't really matter. He's just a fucking athlete. He's so good on the mic. He, you could really throw him anywhere, and he's going to look good next to anyone. Well, we then had the sub-main event, Asuka taking on Rhea Ripley again. This, unfortunately... It's a fantasy match for a lot of people, but I thought this was predictable from the start, just based off the way that Oscar's been used and built the last four or five months. She kind of went on an invisible run for a bit, but um, what were your guys' thoughts on Rhea Ripley coming up, debuting on Raw, and then taking the belt? I liked it. She came in hot. Fucking taking on Charlotte last year at Mania, who was a nice little introduction to the main roster. That's fucking intense, but... I thought it was good. It just it lacked a certain emotion because the night before, like you had Sasha and Bianca tear the fucking house down. So I, I don't know if people were still rolling off that. But uh, like yeah, all the in ring work was good. But I thought it was it was it was a good match. It was just a certain like lack of emotion from the crowd. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the they didn't like the backstory. They didn't get a whole lot of time because they just kind of they showed a vignette and they're like, oh, she's coming. And then the feud started. So I, I don't know. But the match was good. I just think there was something missing overall. It was good, not great. Like, I don't have too much of a problem with it. It's just like what you said before, like Oscar, you know, the way they've been building her. This wasn't going to get that kind of moment that I think Rhea wanted by winning the title. Like, it's a big moment winning it. But. I think this match was missing Charlotte Flair. Like she came back on Raw. Like there's no reason why she couldn't have been in the match then the night before. I think so. I think they missed an opportunity. They could have had a triple threat with them, and maybe Rhea could have got her moment by beating Oscar for the title and build something with Charlotte, which they're probably doing now. So like, I think it left a lot um, potential on the table there, and they could have really had a bigger moment for the Raw women's side. Yeah, I agree there too. But guess what, Alino? Charlotte Flair last night on Raw was Brock Lesnar. <laughs> oh, man, that shoot promo. <laughs> Coming back the night after WrestleMania, that's Brock Lesnar's bread and butter, but it's Charlotte Flair. She cut that great promo. By the way, I don't know if you guys noticed, she looked a lot skinnier. I don't know if that's just me. She kind of looked a lot thinner. But, uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk maybe. I, I, I assume we're going to get a triple threat at the next pay-per-view, which is going to be incredible. Um, if Sasha ends up taking some time off, my biggest question there is, who do you think is the perfect first challenger for Bianca Belair? Because again, when you have a, a, a first ever title reign, you know, being as young as she is, it's really tough to maybe get a first challenger. You know what I mean? I mean, is it Carmella? Is it someone of that nature? If it's not Sasha Banks, is it Bailey, who we haven't really seen a lot of? I really don't know, but in terms of the women's division right now on Raw, getting Charlotte Flair back, that's absolutely huge. But in terms of Asuka, 
uh, the last year for me has just kind of been disappointing and it's not her fault. So um, moving on, we had the triple threat for the universal title, the match that I was definitely looking forward to the most edge, Daniel Bryan, Roman Reigns. This match to me was one of the best main events that I could remember in a very long time. You look at the last couple of main events at WrestleMania. Um, I think this one outshines a lot of them. What were your guys' thoughts on this match? Edge with the entrance, Brian with the entrance, Roman with the entrance. This match to me absolutely killed it. This was match of the night for me. Um, again, like I said, who do you think performed the best? And were you surprised with the end result? Man, uh, yeah, these are all stars. These are all three superstars just closing the show together. Um, Edge is next level. He just screams main event of WrestleMania. Everything about this just clicked. Um, the crowd chanting Roman sucks when he was given the powerbomb to Brian was, I, I don't know, that just stands out in my mind to me. Just the way he was reacting to it and the oh man, and then Edge with the spear. But there were so many great spots in this match. It might be the best triple threat in history. You got to look back on it. I don't know. But everything just clicked about this. Um, I, I want to say Roman performed the best, but like if you can go either way with it, I just thought everyone was on. Like every the payoff, they, the way they've been building it on SmackDown the last couple of months, and then everything just cultivated to that one moment. And then Roman retaining was just uh, was just awesome. So I don't think anyone's going to have a complaint about this match. Just the perfect way to close the show. Yeah, I love the match. Uh, I was a little bit surprised Edge didn't win just because they kept on talking about that uh, WrestleMania was 10 years to the day that he retired. So I thought because they were mentioning it so much and the buildup and everything, maybe Edge wins the match by pinning Daniel Bryan after that concerto. But they went with Roman. I'm fine with it, the way he stacked them up. It also leads like Edge was on top of Daniel Bryan. So does Edge really get the claim that he won the match? So I think this also leaves them open for more matches in the future. Gives them another feud to go at. So I was fine with it. I thought it was a really good match. Perfect main event of night two, considering how they started it. It was a complete 180. Thank God it wasn't like the first match. Uh, so Edge performed well. He didn't get injured. Daniel Bryan didn't get concussed, which is nice. And Roman still got booed as a heel. So... That's rare to see uh, a heel going into WrestleMania usually gets cheered. Roman still got booed. So what he's doing is working and I was just fine with it. Yeah. I was surprised with Roman getting booed. Honestly, uh, you look at the year he's had, he, he, you know, legendary type shit here. Um, doing the concerto to edge was just the nail in the coffin for me. Like that, like that was the defining moment right there. Like this guy is the top heel. He's, he's at the top of his game. Um, Edge, like the, the the best part with the triple threat for me was, you know, you you base it off of shticks and characters like Daniel Bryan being that um, poetic baby face, and you know what all the little kids kind of look up to. I didn't get that from Daniel Bryan this time around. Like he was the he was the underdog, but he kind of didn't feel like that, you know, suck up baby face type character. He kind of was a little bit more of himself. Um, Roman Reigns at times too, like he would get cheered. He would know that he would be appreciated, but at the same time, you know, he wants to get booed. He wants to, you know, just take over and he did. And then of course, Edge, 
you didn't know at times if he was a face, a heel, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's like, I'm rated R, I'm back. So he became the heel in this program. It didn't feel like it at WrestleMania because obviously a lot of people wanted to see him win. But just the way how all three of these guys just meshed so well together, they were being themselves, nothing was forced character-wise. It just, it was, even the, the way that Jey Uso came out in the match too, he just won the Andre the Giant Battle Royal. So they're continuing to make him look like a big-time player, which I love. Like even remember when we talked about him in the chamber, um, getting those two eliminations and then, you know, helping Roman win here uh, was absolutely amazing. I said this before, closing the show, you have Roman Uso and um, and Paul Heyman. That's just the funniest three people to close out of WrestleMania I've ever seen. But Pinello, I don't know if it's the best triple threat of all time. It's definitely up there. But, man, when we go back and watch this, nothing but smiles with these three guys. So I love seeing Roman retain here. I kind of wanted to – like I said, I really didn't know who would win. I could see all three of them winning. Even during the match, we kind of had that, you know, when Edge got the spear, when Edge pulled out the concerto, is he actually going to pin Daniel Bryan here and get the win? And then, no, Roman Reigns obviously comes in. He has the help he needs. So my biggest question actually moving on from this triple threat is, what is next for Daniel Bryan? And who do you think is going to be the guy to take it off of Roman Reigns? Because I really thought if it wasn't Edge or Daniel Bryan, there's a guy named Seth Rollins. But again, he just lost to Cesaro at WrestleMania. So do you guys think Roman Reigns is having this title for a quite a while? Yeah, yeah, you gotta look till SummerSlam to see his next real opponent. I was gonna say Cesaro, or I don't think they'd roll with Kevin Owens again because they did that just a pay per view before. But yeah, Cesaro beating Seth Rollins at WrestleMania, and then when you look who's next in line, you know, you could just that's a pretty good option there. But for Daniel Bryan, I want to see Edge go absolutely fucking ballistic and just harass Daniel Bryan every single week for ruining his chances at WrestleMania because of the triple threat even though Romans stacked them on each other and made them look like nothing in the end. But I just want, yeah, I want to see Edge go crazy. Like when he went to see in his dad's house, that kind of crazy. I just want to be like, you're the reason why I lost at WrestleMania. You're the reason you shit all over my dream coming back and just inserting yourself into the match. So I want to see Edge and Brian go at it for a little bit. He's going he's to play the copycat card too. Be like, you copied me. I had to retire. You didn't really have to retire. You just wanted the attention. <laughs> Yeah, I think Edge and Daniel Bryan, that's a perfect feud after WrestleMania. Like, I agree. I think Cesaro, one of these pay-per-views coming up, will face Roman. Uh, then you got also Big E. They can go with that. I hope they don't have Roman hold the title, though, until next WrestleMania. That's what They, they kind of had that pattern with Cena before where it's like he'll hold the title for over a year. Then after like the title rank gets stale... Maybe Roman faces The Rock next year, not for the title. Could still have it as a main event. Like I don't think you need a title for that. Make the title like someone else hold it by then. Or another low-key guy, Adam Cole, coming up, winning the money of the bank. And you have Adam Cole, Roman, down the line. Would you guys be open to that? Absolutely. I mean, shit. We've been saying for years now, we're like, okay, there's not much for him to do. And it's been years later, and we're like, oh, my God, he's... They just keep coming up with stories in NXT. So I think any of these guys can get called up at any time now. I would love to see Edge win the, the money in the bank again. <laughs> no, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Yeah, no, he's not winning it again, no. But uh, that would have been hilarious. But, yeah, Adam Cole's a name that we really forget about. And even – how about – guys, he just lost the belt. What What about Finn Balor? He just lost to Karrion Cross. Does, does yeah. he get called up? Like, I, I re- I, I'm looking forward to this Money in the Bank this year. For um, for Finn Balor, they can't fuck it up. Because <laughs> remember the first five, six months or so when uh, – just the way he came in, he was like the fifth overall pick when they did the draft, and he was supposed to be like that main piece to Monday Night Raw, and it started off well, and then the injury, but then when he came back after, they they, they fucked everything up with him. So they, re, they revamped him in NXT. He's been doing amazing the last year or so. If they bring him up to the main roster and they do what they did last time, it's a fucking colossal failure. <laughs> How long do you think Roman holds a title? SummerSlam. I think that's the next... Uh, yeah. It'll be like matches with Cesaro, like we just said, at the next pay-per-view. And it'll, yeah, be, like, like, it'll be nice, and he'll get a shot set, but he's not actually going to win. Like, remember, AJ's, remember AJ Styles' run uh, when he had it and he was taking on guys like uh, like Rusev and shit like that? I feel like this is this is, <laughs> this is is kind of the... This is the the part where this is the part of Roman Reigns' reign where it's kind of like okay we gotta we gotta start experimenting here we gotta get Cesaro we gotta get Biggie we gotta maybe even if you really want to throw people off get Shinsuke like we just gotta start mixing yes. it up start getting some new fresh challengers for Roman Reigns and uh, bolster up his resume as one of the better uh, Universal Title reigns of all time so um, what Roman Reigns is doing right now like. We're going to look back on this in like five, 10 years. And this is going to be one of the best runs that I can remember. So um, I think his run, it was on par with Daniel Bryan's 2018. But I think now with him piling up Edge and Daniel Bryan and retaining his title, I think he just surpassed it. So to me, guys, I know this is this may be a hot take. I don't know if you agree me agree with me or disagree with me. This is one of the best heel runs I've seen since CM Punk and Brock Lesnar. So Roman Reigns continuing to do his thing, um, the top heel. I never, ever, ever thought I'd be saying that. So it's really awesome to see Roman finally being the badass we've wanted to see him be for so, so many years. So to answer your question, Alino, I'll see SummerSlam if that at the earliest Roman Reigns loses it. Be good. The only thing, like, if he has a reign until... Survivor Series, and if everything lines up, do you want to see this version of Roman versus Raw's version of Bobby at Survivor Series? Holy shit. Yeah, that'd be insane. <laughs> That's, but, you know what, but you know what they would do, though? But you know what they would do, though, guys? You, you, you already know what I'm going to say. You know what they would do at Survivor Series. They would have Brock come back. They'd have him beat Lashley. <laughs> And then they'd have Lesnar versus Reigns at Survivor Series with Paul Heyman right in the middle of things. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did that. But Lashley versus Reigns, oh, man. We've seen it before, but the level they're both at right now, holy shit, that would be a war. I'm in. Boom. The big man. The almighty. Anyways, guys, that is it for this week. Episode 126, a long one. Talked about WrestleMania. Talked about the implications moving forward. Talking about the trade deadline, Taylor Hall, the leaps, uh, all that type of jazz. So 
With that being said, this is In The Zone, signing out, episode 126.